From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Candace Watt-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking with Yana Krupnikov and John Barry Ryan. They're both at the University of Michigan, and they are the co-authors of the book, The Other Divide, Polarization and Disengagement in American Politics. And the crux of this book is that they argue we should be paying more attention to people who do not follow politics all the time or maybe are not as engaged as the folks listening to this show. So we're going to unpack all of that. But I think that there's a lot of ways that this divide that Yana and John describe translates into other parts of our lives, right? Like people can be fans of politics the way that they're fans of sports teams or musicians or any of these kinds of things. And Chris, I know you were sharing before a story about an Uber trip you took recently that I think might fit in here. I'm a Bears fan and there's not a Bears fan in the world who doesn't have an opinion on whether Justin Fields should continue as the quarterback of the Bears. And I was in this Uber and Uh, You know, I started chatting with this guy and it just kind of quickly dawned on me that his knowledge of professional football was just exponentially larger than mine. And he was talking about, you know, where different quarterbacks were in terms of their offensive scheme and how much running versus passing and who their offensive coordinator was. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm bailing out of this conversation because this guy just knows so much more about it than I do. And I just, you know, I'm kind of used to being on the other foot when I'm at parties and whatever, because I just know more about this stuff than most people do. And, and so it was a useful reminder that there's a lot of people who go through their lives and they just don't have the time or the inclination to be as invested in the political world as as we are. And by we, I mean the three of us and all the people who listen to this podcast. So I think this is an excellent analogy, in part because I am also a Bears fan, but by lineage. So I don't know who Justin Fields is and I don't care. I just want the Bears to win. And so there's someone also on the spectrum of political knowledge that's like, hmm, things seem to be going okay, you know? So I think also what that analogy highlights is the way that politics itself is also framed around competition, around who's on what team, around who's making the biggest plays, around horse races. And so there is a group of people who we might call political junkies that are very much so like fanatics. And then there are people who are casual watchers, you know, who are listening to the news in their car. And then there's just some people who like in sports are like, what sports ball? You know, don't know what's going on. I mean, I think the thing here is that the ramifications for focusing on the fanatics and politics is that there are cascading effects for our perceptions of what's important, how to understand issues, um, and even that kind of ever looming sense of political polarization on every single thing. And I'm I'm totally in the what sports ball camp, by the way, yeah. just putting that out there. So we're nicely, nicely represented. Candace, we may want to talk about this in the second part, but you raise an interesting point for me, which is 
to say there's politically engaged and then there's politically engaged, right? And there's some folks who go out for, for events, knock on doors, make phone calls, give money. And, and so they are engaged. And then there's other people who look upon politics as in a way that is very similar to how a sports fan looks at sports. They want their team to win and they follow it and they're looking for signs that their team is going to win. And they think about what Congress is going to do about the looming shutdown in much the same way that Bears fans think about what are we going to do with our new offensive coordinator. I think that's one of the important contributions that Yana and John's project makes, which is there are these people who are watching the news and looking on X and listening to weird people on TikTok and, 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 and checking. They have news, bling, 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 what do you call these? Notifications, mm-hmm. notifications on their phone from- Or their, or their wrist, which really freaks you know, me, okay. Whatever, all of these things, yeah. <laughs> they're looking at it on their wrist, they're looking at it on their phone, all of these things. Um, and they may not actually be kind of participatory beside right. that. but we hear their voices so loudly and they make their preferences and um, their way of thinking about politics seem like that's the only way that we should be thinking about politics and what issues are important. So on the one hand, they are not not necessarily, right? I imagine that there's a, a overlap of the folks who are knocking on doors and giving donations and all of these things, but they are also influencing politics in the way that we engage with each other and the way that we perceive what are the issues candidates should be talking about and what the average American thinks about something. Um, we, We get kind of out of whack. So it's not new that there are just a few people who are deeply invested in politics but Yana and John do help us to understand the consequences of giving, you know, almost undue attention to these folks and all of the drama that they bring. Yeah, Yana and John do a good job of, of expanding upon this framework that they've created and providing some of the data that they've gathered from the research and the surveys and things that went into this book. So let's go now to the interview. Yana Krupnikov and John Barry Ryan, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. So I have to say that uh, your book, The Other Divide, um, really resonated with me. Um, I am the only person in my immediate family who follows politics uh, or or pays attention to it. And I know that that is a, a divide that you spent a lot of time in the book talking about and that we will explore in this conversation. But to, to kick things off, I wonder if you could talk a bit about uh, how you became interested in looking at people who don't follow politics? Is it maybe something similar in your lives? Uh, you know, your your friends or family or people you interact with or, or what brought you to looking at this population in particular? I mean, I think part of it is along the lines of what you said, <laughs> where we would read these stories about how America has these hopeless partisan divides because everyone is so wrapped up in their politics. And thinking to myself, well, I'm a political science professor. I follow politics fairly regularly. 
I don't see myself in these people. These people seem like another level above where I'm at. And yet I know I'm above the average. So what's going on with all the people who are below me, which is probably the majority of the people. So, right, it's that sort of, it was really about the way that in the news, but also in political science, I don't know if it's actually in the literature itself, but in the way political scientists would talk about the articles, you know, I mean, it's a standard political science problem is there's a correlation and you act as if that explains everything. And so anyway, so that's what we were sort of motivated by was this idea that like, well, this just doesn't seem to paint the picture of most people who we would know. And if it did, then that means we follow politics less than we realize, which seems which would seem off and weird. Uh, and so in in the book as a way of kind of getting at these differing levels of involvement, you have three characters, Chip, Dale and Pete. Uh, I wonder if you could walk us through the, those archetypes and how much they pay attention or not to what happens in politics. Uh, we can think of these three characters basically in three ways. So we can think of Pete, right? And let's say Pete is somebody who does not follow any politics, right? If we were to ask Pete, are you interested in politics? We would say, never. I never follow politics. I will never listen to any political news. I'm not interested in this at all, right? And then we can think, um, let's say, of Chip. Um, and let's say Chip is somebody who, you know, watches the news, right? They uh, might come home after work or, you know, at night, turn on the news, check it out. They might check in during the day, during an election, they might pay a little more attention because lots of things are going on. If we were to ask them like the standard interest question, how interested in your politics, they might actually say, yeah, you know, I'm pretty interested. If we might ask them, how often do you follow it? They might say, you know what, I follow it pretty regularly, right? They probably would not initiate a conversation about politics. But if somebody, let's say, started a conversation about politics, they might respond. They might know some things kind of differently from Pete, who might just sort of say, I don't have anything here. You know, I, I'm done with this conversation. Like, I don't, we're not really going to talk about politics, right? And so it's really easy to distinguish between Pete and Chip. But let's say we have like a third character who we named Dale. And Dale, if asked, are you interested in politics? Would also say, like Chip, really interested in politics, really follow it a whole lot. But Dale isn't just checking in like during the 6.30 news or maybe a couple of times a week on websites. Dale is checking in on politics hourly. Dale is deliberately searching out political news. Dale is really looking for additional information. Dale is initiating conversations about politics. If Dale is on a flight, Dale might buy Wi-Fi and use that Wi-Fi to check what is happening in the news and really kind of uh, check in on politics. But the thing is, the standard interest question isn't actually really able to distinguish between Chip and Dale, even though those are two really, really different categories. We can tell they're both really kind of different from Pete, but we can't tell the distinction amongst somebody who says they're interested, checks in regular news, and somebody who's interested and is deeply, deeply involved in checking in on politics. And that's kind of where our measure comes mm -hmm. in to that like next level distinction. From what you were able to measure, how do these three archetypes map on to the American population? How many people 
are like Chip? How many are like Dale? How many are like Pete? I mean, that's tough, right? In one way, because it's the measure we use is essentially a continuum of like 49 different points, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to think about the way the distribution works, the the people who are sort of the in the highest end, the people who would be sort of agreeing with every question we ask in terms of like a, yes, politics is central to my life and politics should be central to your life too. Depending on the survey, 15, 20%, maybe 25% at the highest if we're going to really sort of stretch it. On the low end, you're looking more at like 10 to 15%, right? So if you figure that 20% are really high, 15% are really low, that puts 65% in this sort of world in which it's sort of like, well, either they think politics is important for them to follow, but not that important for you to follow, or they just are the same in, or, or they're just sort of like, eh, you should kind of follow, but maybe not. Right. And so those are potentially conflating two different types of people. But at the same time, the various questions are so highly hanged together so much that I'm not sure that you're really noticing differences between these people. Um, or rather that sort of like, well, that aspect of politics isn't that important. But this aspect of politics is important, but it's not important for you to do it. I can do it on my own. Were you able to glean anything about why people might not choose to engage? Is it out of frustration with what they perceive as the political system? Is it just because there, yeah, there are other things that they would rather do to occupy their their time and attention? What are what are some of the reasons that you know, people may actively choose not to seek out or or follow political news and information? On that question, we can actually put together. Um, there's been kind of a rich uh, area of research that's actually been recent and somewhat even post our book about these kind of people and their engagement with politics. And we can kind of take our work and, and kind of intermix it with that. The first thing I often kind of like to point out is that in a lot of cases, being deeply involved is a tremendous amount of time. And it's not just a tremendous amount of time, it's a tremendous amount of flexible time. Not everybody has the type of flexible time where they can actually check in what's happening, you know, online of what's happening hourly on the news, right? So if we think about that structure, just literally the structure of a person's day, it is not necessarily a super active choice to sort of say, I'm pulling myself away from it. It's really just a constraint, daily constraints, right? You have a lot of things going on. You have your life. You might have a really difficult life, so you can't necessarily follow these things. I think that's part one. I think that as a result, the people who do spend a lot of time on politics and do follow politics come to stand... We just talked about the, the archetypes, right? Mm -hmm. They come to represent, oh, this is what it means to be engaged with politics. And that seems kind of incredibly inaccessible and it seems overwhelming and it seems really difficult for somebody. And the more that we see those people, let's say, echoed by the media, the more we hear their voices, the more it becomes kind of something far away and something inaccessible. So I think that's one aspect of it. Recently, there's been a ton of work done, really kind of these excellent surveys on news avoidance, for example, mm -hmm. something like Ben Toff's work on, on news avoidance. And what you see there is that people are just kind of overwhelmed by the news and news becomes something really difficult for them. Mm -hmm. So in a way, people come to avoid 
the news generally. So it's not necessarily just politics, but it's just that kind of every time you follow the news, you just see kind of horrible things happening around you, which is what the news avoidance work shows. Like when people are asked about it, this is kind of why they are not following the news. Then I think there is additional work on the fact that people might associate politics with difficulty and conflict. There's a great book by um, uh, Taylor Carlson and Jamie Settle called What Goes Unsaid. And they essentially go into this idea that people are really fearful, essentially, to start discussing politics. They become really fearful to basically engage with political ideas. And I think all of this essentially starts to intermix, right? You see on the news and you see these really, really political voices. You start to think to yourself, oh, this is what engaging in politics looks like. Those voices also often happen to care a lot about their particular political position. And so politics becomes overwhelming. It becomes uh, something that's uncomfortable. And it becomes something that over time, you don't necessarily want to engage with. And I think all these things basically kind of create just this joint idea. I think one of the most more interesting things we find in our book is the survey where we ask people, why do people post about politics on social media? And the divide there, I think, is really interesting because the people who are deeply involved see these really altruistic motivations for posting about politics, which is that we're letting people know this, this thing is happening. Like, please know this thing is happening. Right. And I think that's truthful. I think they're, they're, it's truthful, altruistic motivation. For people who aren't deeply involved, there's a tremendous amount of skepticism. They think that people are just posting about politics and just talking about politics because they want to be right, because they want to share their political opinion, uh, because they want to persuade someone. And I think that kind of emulates this idea of people disengaging from politics in part because they don't necessarily think there's space for them there. So a good chunk of the book is dedicated to the media and, you know, the sources that journalists do and do not employ. You mentioned um, a minute ago, uh, Yana, that the deeply involved are often echoed by the media. I know you, you talk a lot about journalists hanging out on Twitter all day. I'm not sure how well that specific piece of it holds up in the X era. But I think the underlying premise is still the same. You know, reporters consume a lot of political information and tend to surround themselves with others and look for sources who also consume a lot of political information and can talk about things at this, you know, much deeper level. Yeah, I, I wonder if you could just say more about how you think about the role that the media plays here and, and how it maybe builds on to this divide that you're describing. One of the things we talk about in the book is that for, for journalists, there's this sort of difficult reality that they're trying to report on, right? So let's just assume that an event happens in the world and 90% of people's response to the events is purely apolitical because it's not really a political event. It's some sort of, maybe it's a, it's a sitcom, a new sitcom on TV. But 10% of the people, um, their reaction is purely political. Well, okay, that's a sizable portion of the public. It's a minority. And it seems like, well, this is something to attune to, especially because for reporters who are on sort of a political beat. Okay. So they're going to talk about that. The difficulty is what do you do with the other 90%? 
Because how do you fill a story that's just, we talked to this person and they didn't know what we were talking about. And then we went to this other person and they had never heard of the thing. And so then we talked to a third person and, and they didn't know either. It's the same difficulty with reporting about air travel. You don't list all the planes that did not experience turbulence. Because what? who wants to read that? And then, but it's even worse in some ways because it's almost nonsensical to the people to say, <laughs> hey, we just saw you, you decide to pull into the McDonald's of the Burger King. Why did Joe Biden make you do that? <laughs> what? I don't even understand. Well, that's, that's the thing. I'm, it turns out that Biden voters go to McDonald's and Trump voters go to Burger King. This is a made up stat. Do not quote that stat. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying, right? That, it, that it's just, it's so baffling to people that you've brought this up. And so, you know, if you're sort of a good media consumer, you understand that when they report about a plane that hit into massive sudden clear air turbulence, this is something that occurs, but it's not typically what occurs. It may frighten you in the moment. It may frighten you the next time you're on a plane and you feel a little bumped. Uh Uh-oh, it's coming. But you don't go through your life thinking that is what plane travel is like. The problem with politics is we have a harder time thinking, well, that's not what how citizens react to politics. Because the people who are so into politics often want to cause turbulence on the flight. (laughs) And so it's like for them, that's not just a thing that occasionally happens. That's the whole purpose of the thing, right, is to bring politics into these things where politics doesn't seem to actually belong. So it it becomes this thing that's like, well, yes, for all of us on the outside who can just observe it, politics is separate from et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it means if I become, you know, sort of what Yana was saying, if I come into the politics, then then that's what's going to be. And then if I want to take the political angle of the story, I'm going to talk to the 10 to 20 percent, you know, and for some things, maybe it's a bit bigger, who have injected and view it through a political lens. And I might say, but that's the important bit anyway. Those 70, 80 percent who aren't in politics, I'm not writing about that, right? Mm. You know, just like if you're, t- again, if you're talking about a specific, what you might call a cult, oftentimes sci-fi show. You don't talk about the people who aren't fans of the show. You don't write about, here's this thing, the show you've never seen. And then you talk to all these people who never watched it. Um, and so it is, it is sort of difficult in that way. And so that's why we don't have solutions for journalists. Because the solution is essentially, we'll just do poll-based things. Okay, well, one, incredibly expensive. Two, writing poll questions is hard. Three, if we increase the amount of polls, the non-response problem will increase even more. Four, all you're going to get is those people who used to be sort of the Vox Populi, explain to us how the world is, mad at you because your poll didn't always show them what they want to hear. So, uh, and that's oftentimes, since those are the, those, that's your, that's your readership and viewership base. So yeah, that, that's why I think we say in the book, like this is, we, we talk about, hey, things aren't as bad as you think in terms of the polit- political divides, blah, 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 blah. But there are these bad things and there's no solutions. Do not, there's no solutions. Yeah. So, I mean, given what you've both been saying about how there are no immediate or obvious solutions for journalists, are there things that we as news consumers, maybe heavy news consumers, or maybe news avoiders, like are there things that people who are not journalists could or should be thinking about, especially as we head into another presidential election cycle? One thing is, especially for the heavy news consumers, the ones who are most likely to want to, whether their friends or family want it or not, discuss politics with them, they 
also have to keep in mind audiences and what is it that you know your, your people are interested in and i mean from a strategic persuasion standpoint you have this sort of element of well it's better to build bridges than to shadow people okay fine but even from just trying to understand the other person's point of view right one of the first things that you can come up with is not that they are liberal and I'm conservative or they're conservative and I'm liberal or they're a Democrat and I'm a Republican, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. Just sort of like, they're not following this stuff. There's a whole bunch of characters who they don't know. There's a new speaker of the house. They know that his name is something boring. That's it. They're not going to go beyond that. And it's like McCarthy was the guy, you know, they'll obviously know who the president is, know who Trump is, those sorts of things. They're not ignorant, but they're not following every beat and every scandal. And so that's something to keep in mind. And that also helps you understand why your arguments aren't potentially resonating. For, for people who are less following the news, well, you know, this becomes difficult because why aren't they following the news? Is it because they, you know, they'd be willing to, but you're working two jobs, you have kids, you're ill, whatever it is. Okay, go with God and do those things. For people who are sort of like, I'm avoiding the news because it's, all about conflict, that's going to be true if you're looking at national news and focusing on Congress and, and things like that. And then when you're talking about a political debate, that's that's going to be true. And so the goal would then be to say, like, there's no need to be following it all the time. Are you able to keep up with sort of what's going on? And then and more importantly, when you're thinking about how you're voting, when you're thinking about how the world works, are you thinking about the way the world works in a certain way because of certain values you have? And then I can give you facts that either support those values or, or refute it. And then the facts don't matter, right? So there isn't, we don't have to worry about the facts here and what information you're getting, because that's not the point. Or alternatively, is it that you've misunderstood something, right? So you get these things where it's like, oh, I'm supporting, you, you always get these quotes. I'm supporting this candidate because of their position on X. It's like, actually, you've reversed the candidates. <laughs> okay, well, that's something you should be making sure if something is that important to you, that you're going to base your entire vote on it, that you actually lock down what's going on there. And so there's plenty of room for heuristics and quick decision making and shortcuts, but then also just sort of this element of, okay, if you really do care about something and you have the time, dedicate the time to understanding at least that aspect of it. You know, there, there actually are a lot of articles if you search, the AP just prints positions they don't print oh we fight you know that oh and then and then trump said this and then biden said this and then they fought each other it literally is this if elected donald trump has said i will do x y and z on this issue if elected joe biden said, i'll do x y and z you can just read those statements now i understand that that's not selling a lot of newspapers or whatever the current version of that statement is and not attracting eyeballs but if what you want to be informed those things exist and the great glory of the internet is you can find them very easily. And the news media does do that. Uh, and it does it a lot more than anyone realizes. It's just the reason people don't realize is because no one talks about those stories because they're not that engaging. They're just purely facts. And if you want the facts, they are there. If my colleague and co-host Chris Beam was here, he would probably say something along the lines of, well, as citizens in a democracy, we have an obligation or, or a duty to pay attention to what's happening, at least in some degree, you know, especially now when you know, it seems like there's a lot of talk about how democracy itself will be on the ballot this November, which maybe is also a framing problem that like you were talking about before, but that's a whole separate 
conversation. But I guess the concern is that we're going to like sleepwalk into democratic erosion or, you know, something along those lines that these things are going to happen because some number of people are not paying attention or not paying enough attention. What would you say to a claim like that or this idea that democracy requires at least a certain amount of participation or involvement from everyone in order to to be successful? I mean, the the, the issue is like, and this isn't us. I mean, we're just quoting Berlson Lodzville McPhee from 50, 70 years ago, right? The people, if somebody ends democracy, the person who is ending democracy is somebody who is deeply involved. Uh, at least at a minimum, cares a lot, right? And that sort of thing of, well, I care so much, it's so important that I get my way, which may be a selfish motivation, but maybe also sort of selfish slash altruistic. Maybe it's even not even selfish, just sort of like this world will be better. And the only way we can have this world is if all you people stop making decisions and getting in the way of my things. And that could be purely, as it often is, and sort of historically, you know, in a lot of dictatorships, kingships, and by 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 making the my way, I mean literally my way. You give me all my money, all the food, and I get all the power, et cetera, et cetera. But it could also be I'm going to stifle L dissent. Um, I'm going to favor these groups for whatever reasons, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So the Berlson Lasso McPhee thing is like, you know, the sort of idea that interest comes with its problems. You know, when we talk about motivated reasoning, the likelihood of even following conspiracy theories, right? A lot of that is more located in the people who are knowledgeable, the people who are following, maybe to because of self-selection, maybe to justify the positions you hold, et cetera, et cetera, right? So there is the question of, do individuals have some sort of obligation to know what's going on? Well, yeah, probably. What is the threshold of that? Well, that's something one could debate. The point where we sort of fall back on is it's the distribution that matters. You can't have a world in which nobody is so involved that they fall into authoritarian <laughs> mindsets mm-hmm. at some time because then, then probably nothing gets done, right? You need those people to go out there and push some ideas and have everybody else say, all right, but you got to calm down. Uh, but that's a good point you brought up, but we got to calm down. We got to figure out the solution here. Um, but you can't have everybody like that. And you can't have everybody where they're sort of like, I don't know. I don't know who the president is. And very few people are like that, but I don't really know who the speaker of the house is either. Or this Schumer guy, I've heard of him. No clue. Right. And so it is about that sort of, uh, that sort of balance, that distribution. And again, right. The other thing that we always also come back to in the book a lot is there are other things besides politics that also matter. You know, and so we got to make sure that there is space for all art that's just for entertainment Mm. or child rearing or teaching that is just sort of like, here's how to count and, (laughs) you know, how people can be safe and and, and that sort of thing. You don't. um, And so making sure there's space for those things, I think, is also important. I just want to be fair to, to those folks who aren't deeply involved. Right. When we're talking about the bulk of the people who aren't deeply involved, they do know kind of key facts of the day. It's not that the deeply involved are the only ones who are paying attention and fulfilling the civic duty and everyone else knows nothing. It's that the deeply involved are going beyond to this next level. 
So those folks who are at that, John says, 60 to 70%, they do know things, right? They, they are kind of following up on what's happening. They're just not doing it hourly. They're just not necessarily constantly talking about it. So the idea here is not this difference in people who are paying attention and people who are paying none. It's people who are paying a next level of attention to politics. Yeah. Yeah, that's that. That's fair. Thank you for for pointing that out. Well, we will link to uh, all of those uh, scholars and, and projects that you mentioned, as well as to your book, The Other Divide, in the show notes. Uh, I hope our listeners will pick it up. Uh, it was a, a very eye opening read, uh, and I think it is well worth perusing, especially in an election year. So, Yana and John, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, so Candace, I wanted to get back to that, the, the idea that there's something almost forever thus about this argument, and there's something distinctive and new about it as well. I mean, you know, on the one hand, from going back as far as America goes back, there are people who were just too damn busy <laughs> to focus on politics, right? I mean, they were working six days a week, 10 hours a day. You know, when I was, uh, I had three kids under the age of 10. And I would listen to NPR on the way to work and the way home. And that was it. And I think none of that is particularly new. It wasn't I didn't care, but I just didn't have the it was not possible for me to be invested in the way that, you know, I am now. And I think the other thing that that brings to my mind is that it speaks to the power of retired Americans because they are not in that position. They do have time and flexible time. And, you know, many of them have some disposable income. So it makes sense that given the way the system kind of works and who it listens to, Mm -hmm. that those folks would have, you know, an outside impact on politics. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we see that over and over and over, right? And so that's not new. But I do think that there is, well, first of all, you have a completely different media environment. Yep. And that's a big one. And then the other thing is that, you know, okay, maybe people aren't all as polarized as the most polarized of us are. But at the same time, our society is deeply polarized. And so I wonder if that makes an impact as well in terms of like, you know, it, it raises the stakes when we're talking about these little things or comparatively little policy fights because everything is kind of on a knife edge and there's so much enmity, right? I mean, it's not just that, you know, oh, I'd rather the Republican wins. It's that if the Democrats win, America as we know it is going to end and and vice versa, right? Democrats say the same thing. And so I I, I think in that in both of those senses, the differences are important. And, you know, I guess I wish they would have said more about that. I think you're exactly right that, yes, there have always been people who are more invested in politics than others, but the ramifications and the speed at which a certain group of people's ideas, attitudes, preferences Mm -hmm. um, are spread and amplified is just a lot faster. We're in a more segregated, is that the fractionalized media environment? Mm-hmm. And just like you're saying, the, the choices are not quite Tweedledee, Tweedledum in the way 
that they were in the 1950s and 60s, right? That was something that um, the American Political Science Association, you know, said to America about American politics is that we don't actually really have our choices really aren't that different. And now because a small group of folks are, you know, having a lot to say in primaries, the fact that primaried is a verb that means that you are ousted by the person who is more extreme than you suggests, right, that the choices that are made available for the people who are in the middle are actually more extreme and the stakes are higher. I'm going to the question that Jenna asked for me <laughs> in the interview. And I'm like, well, I think that's a damn good question. It is not the same now in mm-hmm. terms of our, I understand that not everybody cares. Mm-hmm. And I understand that people have good reasons that they can't devote as much attention to politics as they, as they might want to, or as others think they should get that. I understand it. I, I respect it. But I also think it is my own feeling is that this is a crisis and that democracy is indeed on the ballot in 2024. And so if you care at all about our politics, our society, the the legitimacy of you checking out or not being as engaged as you might be becomes, I think, less legitimate. I guess that's what I would say. And I say it with trepidation because I know it makes me me sound like a scold. But if it's true, as I think it is, that the stakes in this election are existential, then I want to encourage all Americans to take that reality seriously. I think one of the things that perhaps is worth taking away is that for political junkies, the people who are listening to this show, and ones like it is to recognize that their very strong feelings and preferences aren't, in fact, necessarily representative of the American population. And if those people who are political junkies are also people who are junkies for democracy, then they would have to think about what the ramifications are for the quality of our democracy and the extent to which what we're doing here, their loud voices represents the values and the interests of our society, right? For better or worse, right? Mm -hmm. There are times when maybe it's not awesome when the majority's preferences are made the law of the land or whatever. But I I think that there's something to be said about maybe we don't actually have a great idea about what the average American thinks about anything based on watching the news and perusing social media and talking to your political junkie friends in your echo chamber. Um, and I don't know, maybe it might inspire some epistemic humility. I think you're right that this is an interesting and important reminder of what the body politic really looks mm-hmm. like and how that matters in terms of how we conduct ourselves democratically and how we understand ourselves as a, as a political society. So. It's worth your attention if you find those things important. So for Democracy Works, I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Candace Watts-Smith. Thank you for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Public Media. Our editors are Michael Klein, Chris Kugler, Mark Stitzer, and Clint Yoder. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. 
Additional production support from Andy Grant and Christine Allen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Democracy Works is a member of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our podcast collective devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.